Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And once again, thanks everybody for paying attention and listening. Uh, we're glad that you're here and we're hoping that you're continuing to find value from our podcast. Um, we would love it if everybody took the time to give us a shout out, leave us a review, let us know uh, what we can do better and what topics would be more helpful for you. Um, uh, and just better for us to continue educating. Uh, I did want to let everybody know we have just started a YouTube channel, um, Spine and Nerve, uh, also on YouTube. Um, just getting started there. Uh, please give us some grace. Uh, we've never done video before, so we're not very good at it. But hopefully uh, it will improve over time. But anyways, on to today's topic. Dr. K, take it away. Yeah, so one of the major things that we wanted to uh, make sure we uh, talked about today and the discussion that we wanted to have today was in regards to the idea that, you know, when we think about chronic pain, of course we think about the painful symptoms that the patient has to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I think an important concept, uh, and, uh, and like I said, the idea that we wanted to discuss today um, and to highlight is the idea that, you know, chronic pain, uh, based upon the totality of the research and evidence that we have to date, really is a disease process in and of itself. Um, and so we just wanted to uh, bring, you know, bring into conversation some of the research and some of the uh, some of the theories that that support that that uh, that uh, concept. So um, uh, before we, you know, emphasize uh, em emphasize these things, uh, you know, I just wanted to give a quick review of some uh, concepts and statistics statistics that we that we know well at this point, but just to uh, give us a uh, background uh, to dive down further. Um, so, you know, as I said, chronic pain uh, has a significant potential for negative impact on function, quality of life, and the health of our patients. And although there's uh, rightfully so, so much emphasis on the tapering down of opioid medications, um, and it's critical that we continue to work to optimize the safety of our patients when it comes to opioid exposure and dose, at the same time, it's imperative that we continue to work to optimize our treatment of chronic pain conditions um, that, our, that our patients are battling as well. Um, uh, because I think, you know, there are times where we may think of, uh, when we're dealing with the patient, we may think um, of success as getting that number down, you know, in terms of the total oromorphine equivalence for the patient. Um, but Although that, like I said, that's uh, understandably and uh, is a very important thing that we've emphasized in multiple discussions in the past uh, because we talked about all the long-term, you know, potential negative effects of opioids, obviously uh, risk of uh, respiratory depression and death, tolerance, dependence, addiction, the increased risk of uh, uh, stroke and heart attack, suppression of the immune system, causing and worsening uh, depression, all these, uh, and then lowering the pain threshold over time, all these things that we've discussed in the past, of course, you know, there is a uh, appropriate emphasis on lowering that total oromorphine equivalence, but I think it's just important to always remind ourselves that the chronic pain process itself also has very significant um, uh, impacts on, on the patient, not just in terms of their symptoms and impaired function, but in terms of their uh, health as well. So, 
Um, as a quick review, like I said, of some statistics, as we know, chronic pain is unfortunately very prevalent in our world. There was an article published in 2019 in the Journal of Pain that focused on the prevalence of chronic pain in the United States, found an estimated prevalence of 19 to 43 of percent of the U.S. population. That same article did something really interesting that I, th I thought was um, uh, clinically relevant and helpful for us. Um, but what that article did was that it uh, created more of a scale of severity of chronic pain and its impact on function and health and found that high impact chronic pain uh, defined as having pain on most or every day uh, for three months or longer with greater than or equal to one associated activity limitation is estimated to have an overall prevalence of 4.8% or essentially around 5% or essentially around 10 million adults in the United States. So I, like I said, I think that statistic holds you know important value. There's so many different uh, studies in terms of uh, the prevalence of chronic pain and there's a huge variability there. But if we really you know kind of uh, take take a more um, uh, uh, more finesse in terms of the definition of that significant pain, then I think, like I said, I think it gives us some valuable numbers in, th in terms of thinking about what we're dealing with here. Um, a key finding in that uh, article I just brought up from the uh, Journal of Pain was that uh, chronic pain was, a, was strongly associated with increased risk of disability. In fact, uh, even after controlling for other health conditions, the authors found that disability was more likely in those with chronic pain with an odds ratio of uh, 4.23 compared to patients with uh, even stroke, uh, diabetes, um, heart disease, uh, and kidney failure. So just kind of you know, demonstrating with, with chronic pain how much of an impact that has on a patient's disability. So like I said, the, uh, the key concept that we wanted to have a discussion about today um, uh, now that we've kind of you know reminded ourselves of the, uh, the the epidemiology and impact of chronic pain, is that is that the idea that chronic pain is a disease process, and that disease process is not solely defined by the experience of pain and the consequent consequent activity limitations, but rather that chronic pain can have this negative impact on other aspects of our health, including but not limited to a potential link to dementia, uh, hypertension, and compromise of our immune system. Um, so <clears throat> uh, in regards to um, the, some of the things I brought up in terms of uh, dementia and negative uh, impacts negative changes on the brain in terms of the brain uh, function, uh, um, uh, physiology, and uh, anatomy. Um, one of the first studies I wanted to bring up was a, a study that was uh, published in uh, JAMA in 2017. And essentially what this study uh, did was it investigated the question of whether or not chronic pain is associated with accelerated cognitive decline in the elderly. It, it was a cohort study involving uh, 10,000 elderly adults, and the primary outcome measures were composite memory score and dementia uh, probability. And after covariate adjustment, uh, chronic pain was found to be associated with a uh, around a 9% more rapid memory decline compared to those uh, without persistent pain. And ultimately, the authors concluded that persistent pain was associated with accelerated memory decline and increased probability of uh, dementia. There are a number of other studies demonstrating that chronic pain is associated with negative effects uh, on cerebral gray matter volume, including a study published in medicine in 2018 by Dr. Lau and his colleagues 
that investigated 30 patients with chronic knee osteoarthritis and compared them to age-matched healthy subjects and found an almost two-fold age-related decrease in gray matter volume in the brain for patients with chronic pain. At, you know, as stated, these findings have been reproduced in multiple different chronic pain models, including but not limited to chronic neck pain, chronic low back pain, and uh, fibromyalgia patients. Um, we will, uh, at the, the last uh, article I'll talk about is a more recent study that again addresses the uh, impact of chronic pain on uh, the brain, and like I said, the brain uh, anatomy and physiology. Um, so, you know, supporting this concept that chronic pain is a, a neurologic disease state with multiple potential physical and psychological consequences is another article uh, published by Dr. Fine and colleagues in 2011 that essentially was a, a systematic review of the literature regarding this topic. And after review of the available literature, what these authors found was that chronic pain negatively impacts sleep, brain function, which we had already kind of, which we've already uh, uh, brought up, uh, mental health, uh, cardiovascular health, sexual function, and overall quality of life. Um, as an example of those things we just uh, discussed, the literature review found that the intensity of pain was statistically significant uh, in terms of its prediction of hypertension, independent of other um, uh, factors that they controlled for, including age, sex, race, family history. Um, uh, and individuals with chronic pain in this study had a prevalence, after these adjustments, had a prevalence of 40% uh, uh, for hypertension compared to 20% for patients without chronic pain in their study. And it was hypothesized that this may in, in part be due to a decreased sensitivity of the barrel reflex in patients with chronic pain, which has been demonstrated to be true. Um, so another study addressing this concept was uh, published in the American Journal of Biomedicine and Science and Research in 2019. Um, uh, and this was obviously a more recent study in 2019. And the, the purpose of this study was to evaluate the relationship between pain and comorbidities, including hypertension, in patients with Parkinson's disease. So this was a cross-sectional study design. It was 22 patients with Parkinson's disease, and 70% of these Parkinson's disease patients had significant chronic pain. The most common cause of pain in, this, uh, in these uh, Parkinson's disease patients was not surprisingly musculoskeletal pain, accounting for 45% of the cases, followed by radicular pain for 25% uh, of the patients as the two most common causes of pain. But ultimately, the results were that there was a significant correlation between chronic pain and, uh, and the development of hypertension. Um, again, th these authors, similar to the uh, a study I just mentioned um, uh, by Dr. Fine and colleagues, a similar theory in terms of, you know, why chronic pain may lead to uh, the development or worsening of hypertension. Uh, again, the theory goes back to the, to the concept that in the setting of chronic pain, you have this impairment in autonomic regulation, um, uh, associate, including the uh, decreased sensitivity of the uh, baroreflex uh, predisposing or to the development or worsening of, uh, of hypertension. So um, before we move to the uh, last you know, article discussion that I wanted to, to have here, uh, or the last uh, article that I wanted to bring up here, just to kind of review what we've uh, just discussed, you know, the, the main concept again, like I said, being that chronic pain is not just defined by these symptoms uh, and, the, and the consequent limitations that the patient is having, but, you know, again, based upon the totality of the evidence we have, there's these other significant 
negative impacts on the patient's health that we you know we can be aware of and you know that uh, drive you know how we're uh, working to try to optimize uh, these patients' symptoms and ultimately their health. Um, uh, so this last study that that I wanted to uh, bring up is like as I mentioned in the beginning when we were talking about uh, brain changes in terms of uh, anatomy and physiology. Um, this was a, a recent study published in September of this year, 2020. That um, and and I'm sorry, I know that we're towards the towards the end of uh, August here, but th so this study is literally coming out. Um, uh, uh, so the uh, uh, so <laughs> essentially pre pre published uh, on the on the website here. So brand new study <laughs> coming out in in the Journal of Pain, and essentially it evaluated the aforementioned concept that chronic pain can negatively impact brain anatomy and physiology, and so. As we know, you know osteoarthritis. This is one of the most common um, uh, causes of uh, chronic pain. It's the most common form of arthritis, and it's one of the leading causes of disability around the world. And um, you know, given those facts, we want to continue to optimize the understanding of the pathophysiology of osteoarthritis, including the anatomic and physiologic changes that are occurring at the level of the brain. Um, uh, for these patients, because that's going to be important in terms of optimizing how we can uh, treat these individuals. So in the past, osteoarthritis was considered to be more of a classic, uh, predominantly nociceptive uh, pain process. However, more recent research has demonstrated that in patients with osteoarthritis, we do have both peripheral and central sensitization, as well as uh, changes in the central nervous system, including at the spinal cord level where we have dysfunction of the descending inhibitory pathway. Um, and other studies have shown in these chronic osteoarthritis uh, uh, patients with significant pain, changes in their um, affect, anxiety, catastrophization, you know, things that we typically would see um, it, you know, in other chronic uh, pain conditions. And all of these things, the peripheral central sensitization, the change in the descending inhibitory pathway, the uh, uh, changes in mood and, and catastrophizing, all of these things uh, support the link between osteoarthritis pain and these um, negative changes at the level of the brain. So as we had brought up, there's a significant body of research providing evidence that certain chronic disease processes, including but not limited to osteoarthritis pain and chronic low back pain, not only result in uh, anatomic and physiologic changes in the brain, but uh, can actually predict the uh, transition from acute, uh, more of an acute process to more uh, chronic uh, pain states and uh, essentially the chronification uh, of pain. And that's one thing that we'll bring up towards the end is when we identify these you know, changes in the brain in these patients who are dealing with chronic pain, are those more uh, prognostic? Are those more, you know, um, indicative of the prognosis for that patient in terms of how this chronic pain syndrome is going to, uh, you know, manifest itself in that patient? Or are those changes more a result of the pain process they've been dealing with? And that's something that, you know, is still in the process of being uh, determined and figured, uh, figured out. So 
uh, for the sake of time and to make sure, you know, uh, I, I, I apologize for talking so much here and I want, want Dr. Hovis's input as well, but um, I'm gonna just kind of jump to the results uh, for this uh, study. Um, which ultimately included 91 patients with knee osteoarthritis, 24 patients with hip osteoarthritis, and 36 healthy controls. This study was very elegantly done, and they, they really uh, utilized an impressive and an, an extensive amount of complicated tools, uh, uh, you know, analytical tools, statistical tools, uh, that they combined with uh, neuroanatomy um, and really some uh, interesting strategies to try to determine the most significant important results of this uh, study. So with this complex uh, multivariable analysis, uh, there was determined to be a common set of uh, abnormal uh, anatomical changes in the brain of patients with knee and hip osteoarthritis compared to controls. And uh, essentially what they found was that both uh, knee and hip osteoarthritis patients had decreased gray matter volume in certain areas of the brain, specifically the precentral cortex and the temporal lobe. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, one of the major questions that they raised when they were able to uh, identify these changes was, okay, are, you know, is this more a consequence of the disease process that they're dealing with? Or are these changes uh, prognostic tools for, th hey, this patient may be at more risk for developing a chronic pain syndrome that we're going to be having to deal with in the future? Are you done? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> so uh, obviously Dr. Carvelis is very passionate about um, pain as a disease process. And I think, you know, obviously we've presented a lot of information uh, that shows that you know, pain obviously affects people's quality of life, it affects them on a day-to-day -day basis, but it really does affect their overall health. Um, you know, we have mentioned multiple times in, in, in discussions in the past about all of the ways that it can affect uh, people for, in terms of, uh, you know, cognitive process, sleep, mood, uh, cardiovascular health, which I think we went into a little bit more in detail today with, you know, direct correlation uh, to hypertension. Um, and then, you know, and then, of course, including, you know, sexual function and just get then getting into the quality of life. Right. So all of those things are kind of separate from just quality of life and ways that patients are able to help. Um, one of the things that I think then comes up is like, OK, we've I think it's very hard to say that this is not a chronic uh, disease and it's not uh, it shouldn't be treated like other chronic disease process. But if you control it, can you make changes? Can can you can can controlling pain therefore uh, impact those areas of their health, and that's the question, right? I mean, inherently with every chronic disease process, right? I mean, you have you know obesity, which you know in and of itself has its complications, but is related to so many other things. And uh, like, if you control obesity, can you control other things? The answer, of course, in that situation is usually yes. That you know, controlling obesity controls diabetes, controls hypertension. So if we control pain, can we also control these other factors for patients mm -hmm. yeah and, and I, I you know I think just kind of thinking about it um, logically I, I would say that you know we would we you know, providers taking care of these patients we would say yes and there is there is research to back that up as well in terms of I think one of the good examples would be in terms of the gray matter changes in the brain in terms of you know once you identify patients that 
do have those uh, uh, changes in their gray matter volume, if you're able to actually improve, improve the pain process, then you can actually have some positive changes in regards to that. And I can't think off, off the top of my head any studies specifically in terms of you know hypertension, one of the other major ones we brought up here. But you know, obviously, I would assume that yes, once you make a positive impact on that chronic pain state and things improve in terms of your body's ability to uh, kind of normalizing the autonomic uh, nervous system through the improvement of the chronic pain state, um, and then that would consequently lead to improvement in the blood pressure control. Yeah, I mean, I think the things that are commonly looked at for in um, pain medicine studies, you know, things such as sleep, things such as you know age adjust, age adjusted quality of life, um, you know, day to day function, depression. Um, those are things that we have seen. We do have very good uh, data that shows that as you control pain, that those uh, improve. I mean, there are studies that actually show that improving pain improves cognitive function as well. Um, and so, you, you know, you're right. I don't, I don't off the top of my head remember any specific study looking at controlling for hypertension. I think obviously there's a lot of different variables that come into play uh, in that regard. But it, would, it does seem to make sense that if you can control pain and if we're aggressive early, right? I mean, I think a lot of the purpose of thinking about chronic pain as a disease process, just like any other disease process, is being aggressive early, right? Trying to treat this, understanding that there are long-term consequences and the, the less aggressive that we are up front in getting the pain controlled and allowing this patient to get into the chronic pain state and allowing this patient to start having all of these other negative consequences that come from that chronic pain state um, is, you know, that's that's the intervention that I think all of this points towards, right? Early intervention, you know, uh, and trying to get the pain controlled so that way we don't let the patient go down that road. Right. right? I mean, I think just kind of thinking corollaries, right? I mean, you know, we have data for some of the complex disease individual pathologies, right? CRPS has significant data I, don't, I had to stutter when I said significant, there's so much of it, that shows that if you're able to control that pain in the first year, that the outcomes for that patient long-term are significantly better, right? That you get so much better control of all of the downturn repercussions. And I think that if we thought about all pain in that regards, that when patients come in, that we wanna be able to get them some pain control as quickly as possible, you know, being able to apply a multimodal therapy, uh, treatment plan to be able to help them uh, in a quick way so that they don't enter into that chronic pain state um, and start having these changes that we would probably make a big difference for their long-term health. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. All right, well, Dr. K, um, I know you, you uh, we transitioned away from the science side and so is my favorite part because you get a little bit less quiet or, <laughs> or more quiet by this point. But do you have any uh, closing thoughts? I mean, obviously, I know you, you digested a lot of that uh, amazing information and there there is so much data that's, you know, because because it is you know kind of this this strange maybe to some people topic about thinking about chronic pain as its own separate entity. Um, but um, obviously, you've presented that data well. Any thoughts for our, everybody as uh, we're closing up? No, I think you did a, a great job of summarizing it at the end. So I appreciate that. And sorry, ahead of print, that's what I was trying to. <laughs> I know I was uh, blanking there for a little bit on on that one study, but ahead of print was what I was. Just, <laughs> All right, guys. Well, if you made it this far, thank you guys for paying attention till the end. Uh, we do appreciate it. Uh, please reach out to us and let us know if there's things that we can do better. Uh, I'm going to guess that maybe one of the things we can do better is um, 
interact a little bit more early on. Dr. Carvel is just so good at the science side of things. And that's, you know, for anybody who's met me or knows me or ever heard me speak, that's really not my forte. So it's much better when he presents the data and then we can just kind of jive with it afterwards. Um, but thanks again. Stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Dr. K? No, that's it. Thank you guys. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.